0: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew.
1: Your perishable body will be raised imperishable and you'll get a glorified body. I'm saying all this to let you know that you are distinct above the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, and thus, because you and I are created with the, in the image of God, when Jesus says here, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's, what he's saying is that you and I bear the image, the imprint of our Creator, and you belong to God.
0: God created humans with a specific design. We don't look or act like the animals or the plants. The rest of creation doesn't have the level of intelligence and conscience that we have. In today's message, Pastor Gary will remind you that our design was on purpose. We're created in the image of God, and as the image of God, we're called to be representatives. Just as a coin with the face of a leader should be given to that leader, so should we, who are in the image of God, give our lives in service of our great leader. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew, chapter 22, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
1: The Jews are going to come and they're going to do their best to discredit him. They're going to try to test him. They're going to try to trip him and trap him in his words. And what we're going to see here over the series of of the next several verses, we're going to see these three attempts to discredit Jesus. The first group that's going to come are Pharisees and Herodians, and they're going to try to to, uh, discredit him regarding paying taxes. That's going to be their issue. What do you think we should do? Should we pay taxes? And I'll tell you why in a moment, why it's their attempt to try to discredit him. Then you have a second group here. You have the Sadducees, and they're going to try to discredit him regarding marriage and the resurrection. And then you're going to have, finally, a lawyer who comes, and he's going to try to discredit Jesus uh, regarding the greatest commandment. And what you basically have here between these three is you have a political, a spiritual, and a legal question that each of these groups, they're going to, they're going to try different angles to get Jesus to look stupid. They're going to try to get him to uh, look like he's uh, not legitimate. And so here comes the first group. Now, again, when you start here at verse 15, we see the Pharisees and we're going to see Herodians and they come together. Now they are strange partners in crime because the Pharisees and the Herodians never got along. Okay. The Herodians... Were a political group of Jews who supported King Herod, the Herodian dynasty. The Pharisees are a religious sect that were separatists. The Pharisees fought, thought that they were better than, themselves, than anybody else. That's why when you talk about somebody who has a Pharisaical attitude, they're, usually, they're just judgmental towards others. They think they're better than anybody else. That's the Pharisees. And they never got along with Herodians because the Pharisees felt like you can't like King Herod. You can't be loyal to the Herodian dynasty and, and still you know, claim to be a good Jew. They never got along. Isn't this interesting? When they don't, when they, when they don't like Jesus, they're going to partner up. And so here they come together. Verse 15, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. And here's what they say. Teacher, they said, we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Like they're just buttering him up. Can you picture this scene here? We know that you are a man of integrity. Oh, surely you are. I don't know why I just went British on that, but anyway. (laughs) And, And that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then. What is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So here comes the tax question. Is it right to pay taxes? And Jesus, it says, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. And so they left him and went away. Now, here comes this question about taxes. And, and the issue here is the Herodians believed, because they supported the Herodian dynasty, you ought to pay your taxes. They would just feel very comfortable today. You, you ought to pay your taxes, even 50%. Pay your taxes. All right. And by the way, paying taxes in the United States of America is part of the privilege of living in our free country. I don't think there's, there's a problem paying taxes. There's a problem, perhaps, with how much of our money we should pay in taxes. But the percentage aside, Jesus is basically saying there's a legitimate claim that government has to ask for taxes. But this is how he's going to thread the needle here, because the Herodians want him to say, yeah, pay taxes. The Pharisees want him to say, don't pay taxes. That's an ungodly thing. So what he does here, in his infinite wisdom, he says, well, let me see a coin. And they give him a Roman coin, a denarius. It's got a picture of Caesar on it. He says, well, Caesar's inscription is on it. So uh, his, his image is on it. So give to Caesar what belongs to him. Now, they think that his answer is amazing. That's what it says there in verse, 30, verse 22. When they heard this, they were amazed. Because it's not just the first part that is amazing, it's the second part. It would have been enough for Jesus to simply say, well, whose image is on the coin? All right, it's Caesar's, then why don't you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar? It's the second part that is equally as amazing. Because he says this, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Now look, the coin had the image of Caesar, so the coin belonged to Caesar. But who has the image of God? We do. We have the image of God. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 that we were created in the image and likeness of God. You were distinct as part of the human race above all of the rest of God's creation. When God created the plant kingdom, the plant kingdom was not created with the capacity to know or to think or to worship God. It's a plant. When God created the animal kingdom on the sixth day, the Bible says in the Hebrew, in the Genesis account, that he created them with nefesh. He said they were a living creature, and the Hebrew word is nefesh, and it means soul. God created animals with a soul. Now, don't send me emails later and say, does this mean that my dog's going to go to heaven? I don't know. <laughs> but that's because nefesh, a soul, is the seat of your will and emotion. It is, it is the seat of your mind, will, and emotion. And an animal has nefesh. An animal has a mind. Your dog has emotion. Cats aside, all right? They were God's experiment, all right? And and whenever you see in the Bible good versus evil, now you know. Dogs, cats, anyhow. But your dog shows emotion, expresses emotion. Your dog can get angry, your dog can get sad, can get scared. They have nefesh. They have a capacity to think and to feel and even somewhat to reason. Versus the fern on your porch, okay, it just sits there like a fern. It can't think, it can't reason, it has nothing. But when God created human beings, mankind... He created them as a higher order. He created the male and female in His image. God created them, the Bible says. That word image means the essential nature of God. It is the Hebrew word Selem. The essential nature of God is spirit. And how you differ from your dog, which differs from your fern, is because you were created not only with a soul, with your mind, will, and emotion, the capacity to think and reason and feel, but also with a spirit. And that spirit, then, is the image and the imprint of God. So that when you die and you know Christ as your Savior, your spirit, which will also contain your soul, your mind, will, and emotion, goes to be with the Lord. The only thing that doesn't go to be with the Lord is your body. That returns to dust. And even then, the Bible says your perishable body will be raised imperishable, and you'll get a glorified body. I'm saying all this to let you know that you are distinct above the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, and thus, because you and I are created with the, in the image of God, when Jesus says here, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's, what he's saying is that you and I bear the image, the imprint of our Creator. And you belong to God. Now, to them, obviously, what he's saying is, go ahead and pay your taxes to Caesar, but you give your life to your creator because you bear the image and the imprint of your heavenly father. And that's what God is saying to all of us as well. Like you bear the image of your creator. And God wants to have relationship with you. And so he calls us into that personal relationship with him because we bear his image. We are created in his image and in his likeness. And we are distinct above all the rest of creation. And that's why on the sixth day after God created man, he didn't just say it was good. He said it was very good because he looked at us as the jewel in the crown of his creation. And you are precious to God and you are loved by God and you are created in his image and therefore... Bearing his image, give your life to God because he's the one that gave life to you. So he goes on now, and another crowd, another group address him. Verse 23, that same day, the Sadducees, who were who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, now follow this, this is, this is a bizarre train of thought. It's a hypothetical situation, but here we go. Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? All right, time out just a moment. First of all, the Sadducees were a sect of Jews. And it tells us right at the beginning here, they believe that there's no resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They also, by the way, didn't believe in angels. And this is an easy way to remember their name. The Sadducees were so sad, you see, because they had no belief in the resurrection. They had no belief in the angels. They were just the the downers, the Doug and Debbie downer of the day. They're just like, we don't believe in any of this stuff. Now, here's what's so ironic. Okay, so check this out. You don't believe in the resurrection, and yet you're going to ask Jesus a question about... Whose wife this woman is going to be in the resurrection? You don't even believe that there's going to be the day when the dead will rise. So you're asking a question, and you don't even believe the basis of your own question. How ridiculous is this? It would be like, well, uh, several weeks ago I was downtown in DC in Georgetown, coming out of the Apple Store, and there were some, there were some guys with clipboards and green shirts and across Greenpeace. Some some of the my favorite people. Just save the world and save whales and save the Spotted Owl, you know, and all this stuff. And uh, so here they are with clipboards. And so they, they stopped me coming out of the store. And they're like, uh, excuse me. This guy was, you know, looked like maybe he was a fifth-year college freshman. I don't know. And he said, uh, and, and so he's like, excuse me, because uh, are you familiar with Greenpeace? And I said, Yeah. And uh, and he said, well, you know, do you know that the tuna is in trouble? I said, seriously? Uh, The tuna is in deep trouble. Because we're killing tunas, like, by the massive amounts. And would you like to sign our petition to save a tuna? Now, let me tell you something. (laughs) He's saying all this to me, and I'm like, you know, you're making me really hungry. I'm feeling like a tuna sandwich right now. And then I walked away. But here's the thing. It would be like somebody from Greenpeace saying, what are the wonderful ways you could make tuna salad sandwiches? You, you don't even believe in the killing of tuna fish. Why in the world are you considering how to make a variety of tuna salad sandwiches? Here comes the Sadducees and like you know, we don't even believe in the resurrection, but we got a question for you. If a woman is married to seven different men... When the resurrection happens, who will be her husband? And Jesus answers in verse 29, he replies, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Notice present tense. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So he shut the mouths of the Sadducees with their ridiculous hypothetical question. But in his response, Jesus actually tells us a couple of things. He tells us something about angels. And he tells us something about our own relationships in the next age to come. He tells us that angels are not married, that angelic beings uh, have no kind of uh, relationship like a marriage, and then Jesus uses that to say that we're going to be like the angels, that when we go to be with the Lord and when we go to heaven, there's not going to be homes for husbands and wives, and uh, you, you will not be known as Mr. and Mrs., because we will all be married to Jesus relationship will change. We will be like the angels in that there is no marriage. Now, years ago when I was preaching through this text, I had a dear couple. They had been married almost 50 years, and they came up to me after the service, and and the woman was just, I mean, she was grieving. She was like in tears. And she goes, I love my husband so much, and I can't believe when we go to heaven, I was looking forward to being with him, and we're not going to be married, and, you know, this, this is very troubling. And I, and I had to try to encourage her that, Even though that sounds so sad, uh, that sounds so sad because you have a good marriage. There's going to be some people when they get to heaven who have no problem with this passage. And I had to just encourage her. I said, look, you, you just have to realize it'll be different. But everything in heaven is better. Everything in heaven is better. So even though we can't imagine right now, surely you will know your loved ones, you will have friendship and fellowship with them, but it will be different. But it will be different, better different. There's nothing in heaven, think about this, there's nothing in heaven that'll be worse than or less than life on earth. So it'll be more wonderful and more glorious, though it just won't be the same. Now, again, there are, there are people that are happy with this. I did a funeral years ago and I'm, and I'm up at the casket with, with the widow that her husband had died. And Terry's with me and we're trying to comfort her. And it's just a private moment at the, at the casket and before the funeral service started. And, and uh, Terry turned to her and said, I, I'm sure this is just very difficult for you. And last night, you know, just being alone in your home must have been very painful and she looked at us, and she said, no, no. <laughs> and we just kind of like, what? And she goes, oh, he was a hard man. He was a hard man. I slept good. <laughs> she was like, "I for the first time in like 40 years, I slept good. She, and uh, anyway, it was just a little strange. <laughs> we kind of look at each other like, well, I don't, I don't know what to say. That's great, you know, and... <laughs> you're going to live a happy life now. And just, anyway, so life will be different in heaven, but it'll be good different, and we'll be like the angels. So, verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6.5. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19.18. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, how is it that all the law hangs on these two commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. Because the idea is that if you love God supremely, you wouldn't sin against them. And if you love your neighbor supremely, you won't sin against them. That's the whole total of the Ten Commandments. Because of the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are vertical. They're all about your relationship with God. The last six commandments are horizontal. They're about your relationship with your fellow man. And if we were perfect in love towards God and perfect in love towards our neighbor, then that's the sum total of the law. However, the truth is we're not perfect in our love towards God nor towards each other, and thus we need a Savior. And, and Jesus is pointing out here that uh, loving God should be supreme, loving your neighbor should be supreme. By the way, in John's gospel, he's going to adjust this just a little bit because he is going to talk about, in John thirteen thirty four, love your neighbor as yourself. Originally, think about this, self-love was the highest form of love. Uh, I mean, I I know people struggle, and and there are people who have issues with self-loathing and hating themselves. But generally speaking, people love themselves. And I've I've heard bizarre twists on this verse, too. I've heard people teach this passage saying that you um, should learn to love yourself because you can't love other people unless you first love yourself. I I don't know uh, too many people who have a problem loving themselves. The problem is we love ourselves too much. And so the highest form of love up until Jesus comes... Self actualization was self love. So, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus comes along, however, in John 13 34, and he says, A new command I give you love one another, listen, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And Jesus changes it, he adjusts it from loving one another, that's the supreme command, but not loving one another as you love yourself. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. And that's a higher calling of love. Because to the degree that you know Jesus loves you, God calls us to love each other. That's a high calling. And so, let's finish up this chapter. Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? He's just trying to test their knowledge of who he is. The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Here's basically what Jesus said. You know, if if you've been put in your place time and time again, let's just stop asking them questions. But basically what Jesus is saying here is that when David quotes this in Psalm 110, and and David refers to the Messiah as being a descendant of his, and yet also calls him my Lord, what the passage is saying to us is that uh, Jesus, Messiah, he has an aspect of humanity that is a descendant of David, but an aspect of deity because David calls him my Lord. And so Messiah, Jesus says about himself, is both uh, that which is a human and divine. And, and that passage speaks about the humanity of the Messiah and the deity of Messiah. And Jesus is trying to help them understand that he didn't come just to be this political hero. He came to be uh, the one who would die for the sins of the world because he is God in flesh. Hope oh, is Jump in and you'll find the corner your
0: new life. Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Matthew on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can download our mobile app, too, while you're there. It's under On The Go. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we want to invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30 and 11.45, as well as on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. CornerstoneConnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more and you can meet the staff. If you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us to study Matthew, and we hope you'll tune in again to learn more about Jesus. That's right here on Cornerstone Connection.
1: They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still you know, still you know. you're not